Hello, I'm Caroline Baum, and welcome back to Life Sentences and the second part of my conversation with John Lahr about Arthur Miller. Oh, and by the way, he makes a tiny slip of the tongue that I know some of you will pick up when he refers to the famed and ill-fated Laurence Olivier Marilyn Monroe film The Prince and the Showgirl as The Princess and the Showgirl. Now that I would pay to see. His book runs to just 260 pages, so it's a pretty short one for such a big, complex life. I wondered why, in the acknowledgements, he says it took a long time to write. It's hard to compress. <laughs> it's hard to get at, to, to dig this stuff. You know, this is uh, something Duke Ellington said. It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. And books have to have a swing. They have to have a rhythm that you are in you are you are analyzing but you're also entertaining mm. the the desire is to instruct by pleasing and the style is the pleasing it's the sugar that swats the fly okay so let's go to the sugar maybe for a moment in Arthur's life and we know that sugar is not good for your health so let's leap <laughs> To Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> it's an awkward segue, but I'm going to do it anyway. I want to know what your analysis is of the whole Monroe disaster, because you do characterize it as an unmitigated kind of catastrophe. It was. Do you think that Arthur saw himself as a rescuer? Absolutely. I've lived this story, so I absolutely understand it. Arthur, it's not that Arthur saw himself as a savior. They were both saving each other. That's, that's the point. Now I'm going to read you from the letter that I mentioned. Can I do that? Please. This is the letter that Arthur wrote to his family explaining why he was going to, at some point, marry Marilyn. It's, it's two paragraphs, so I'm going to just read it. Now about Marilyn. I met her in Hollywood in 1951 was never alone with her for five minutes, actually, although Mary, his wife, uh, believes this, uh, uh, never believes this, and is in incapable of believing it, but it is the truth. She was unknown then, having appeared in a few pictures, but not as a star. I had certainly never heard of her. To everyone else, apparently, she was the sexy dame. To me, she had a face bathed in tears, was scared to death, and could barely talk above a whisper. For reasons I have never understood, I told her what I thought, which was that she would be a great star, and that she had in her a kind of sensitivity which, if she worked at it, could make an actress out of her too. There was no one who would not have laughed at me then. We shall soon see whether I was right. I think she will be the greatest actress since Garbo and Bus Stop, which she is now finishing will possibly begin to prove it. I, I saw her three or four times in Hollywood over a period of three days, but never alone, as I have said. I returned to New York. She wrote me twice, and I replied, and said that she had to go on her own way. I was trying to make my marriage work then, and I had no hope, really, but I was bound to try. In the years from 51 until last April, that would have been 1955, I did not see her or hear from her. She tried to make a life with DiMaggio, Joe DiMaggio, a baseball player, 
but he turned out to be a cruel and stupid man, and she left him after a few months. And by the way, refused to take one nickel from him, even though she could have held him up for a fortune which he possesses. She came to New York last winter, and I still did not see her, because I was going to hold on to the bitter end and beyond. But I could not write any more. A View from the Bridge was written out of desperation. I wrote it with my teeth clenched. My house was a tomb. So that tells you everything. He wanted inspiration. She, as Kazan said, went for the drug of comfort. He was going to educate her, and she was going to inspire him. Was there an element, then, of the Pygmalion to their dynamic? Yes, but it's two ways. It's always told as he was going to... No, he was in a desperate situation. He couldn't write. He was unhappy. He had been sexually frozen out of his marriage, I mean, entirely, for years. So, of course, naturally, there's, I mean, what do, what do we think about, what, what appeal to him about Marilyn Monroe? You know, I mean, uh, uh, the, the, but the fact is, it was mutual. And he was, of course, sexually intoxicated. But, but the, you know, he couldn't save his father. He couldn't, say, he couldn't, in, he couldn't give his mother the 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 life uh, she wanted he couldn't save them which is the ch- a child's inheritance uh, I know to my cost and so, but you still carry that will that idea and he was I idealized in his family Miller was ideal as a savior and mm. here was somebody who was I mean. Marilyn called him daddy. And so that's the first, the, the, the first surprise to me was that it was mutual. There was, he was as needy as she was. And the extraordinary thing was, as you can hear from the letter, he made sort of a rookie mistake. He didn't know her. He hadn't spent hardly any time with her. And he certainly had never seen her perform on the set. One of the things that I get from your book is a kind of surprise, perhaps on your part, at the extent to which he became absolutely captivated by her celebrity and about the wattage of fame that she was able to generate. Well, you know, he was a star, but he was a Broadway star. She was an international phenomenon. And you you have i mean i've seen this to a certain degree through living in the slipstream of my father but it's nothing compared to the these sort of global stars i mean the the they had you know in order for her to go shopping in harrods when they came to england they had to close the store so she could you know otherwise they would know but she would have been able to move it's a it's a it's really you have to think of stardom on that level as enchantment a spell i've seen it in my life i've seen people i i used to be friendly with a model called jean shrimpton back in the 60s when she was the first lady to wear a miniskirt or kind of model a miniskirt and when shrimpton was gorgeous but she literally would stop traffic i mean people were paralyzed by the sight of something so perfectly made. And it's not, it's not metaphoric, it's actual. 
And he never seen that's a that's a velocity that he was naive in that sense. He he didn't understand it because he wasn't a Hollywood guy. He hadn't he didn't understand it. And she'd come. He'd known her before she was famous, and now in that in that period she became this international star, and he was excited by it because mm-hmm. it made him an international star. But you know, you don't understand that that the velocity of fame until you're in it, and at a certain speed, all things disintegrate, and to to a certain extent, he just got caught up in the velocity. But what really changed, you know, he the House and American Activities Committee. This is another thing. He is. He did actually talk back to the House on American Activity and and said that he wasn't essentially. Uh, he didn't. He he didn't want to expose communists, but because of his not because of the communists, not because of politics, but because of his sense of his own self. He couldn't do it, which parallels almost verbatim what the character says in the Crucible. But what he doesn't say, and what people haven't noticed is that the day he said that, he also told the House on American Activities that he was going to get married to Marilyn Monroe. So he was, in a sense, he wouldn't, he doesn't put that in his autobiography. But there's this always a sort of darker side to what's going on. There's a, anyway, when he got to, when he got to England, and she, she was the producer, essentially the money behind uh, Princess and the Showgirl playing opposite Laurence Olivier, and he was astonished and appalled by her behavior. She mm. was, she was, she was another person. And it was again. This is an aspect. I, I don't because she was so beautiful, and because she was adorable and charming. He didn't kind of. It was easy, very easy, as in the in the first rush of lust, love, whatever you want to call it. He didn't. <laughs> He didn't first see it. He was he was blind to it. But mm. what Mar- but what he saw in the process of her filming was Marilyn's terror, which she called the terror beyond fear. She had a, her life is a, is a kind of a unbelievable torment and abuse, uh, sexual and emotional. And what she said was, when the monster showed, Arthur couldn't believe it, and he at. at after four months, he had to go back to see his family in America, but he left a diary open. Now, just as in the Orton story, I don't think anybody leaves a diary open unless they're trying to speak to someone without speaking. And what she read was his disappointment in her and the sense that he mm-hmm. thought he had made a mistake. That was after four months. So the, 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 the bloom was off the rose almost immediately. And he said they had two out of the five years were okay. But what, what the, in, the, in the feminist narrative, she was a, in some way emotionally used by him. And the answer to that is yes and no. She, but they were using each other. It was also another transactional arrangement on some level. She misunderstood what a writing life was. And the thing, the thing he was trying to do for her, the thing he promised to do, which was to be this knight in shining armor, to stand by her, was to write her a great part. And that great part was going to be the part that he was writing for her in The Misfits. 
And in the character of Guy, of Gay rather, that was Arthur. And when Arthur tried to explain the play to Billy Wilder, he, who he wanted to direct the play, John Huston in the, in the end directed the film, he wrote to Wilder about the character that he, he's talking about. He says this, the solution for Gay is to assert his skill, his craft as well, to earn money of his own instead of living on hers. He conceives the Mustang hunt to win her back, to dominate her, to bedazzle her, to assert his strength before her again, and thus to conquer and dispel her uneasiness and its threat of dismissal for him. He's writing about himself and mm. what this thing means. And the great final betrayal from Marilyn's point of view was that he didn't write her a new character. He wrote her as they were when they met. And she was furious so that she was complete. She felt that he hadn't delivered her, that he's just another man who had betrayed her. So you can see that, that dynamic. Anyway, that stuff, you see, you, to come back to your original idea of biography, when I would read that letter to Billy Wilder, I could see there is, there is Miller talking about what he cares about most, admitting himself through, you can see what's going on. He's, it's like a ventriloquist. He's throwing himself and his metabolism and his longings and admitting them in, in the guise of another character, which he can't admit in, uh, in ordinary conversation. So you can see how writing psychologically and emotionally is a great release for these hidden, dark, paradoxical feelings which we all have. Absolutely. There is a very touching moment that you record, which is the moment when Marilyn and Elia Kazan or Elia Kazan and Arthur Miller are at an event together. And these two men who have done great work together and been great friends, but who have been pulled apart by the rift of the House Un-American Activities Committee and Kazan's willingness to name names and Arthur's refusal. So they're not on speaking terms anymore. And Marilyn brokers some kind of reconciliation and draws the two men together and clasps each man's hand in hers. And it doesn't really mend the underlying sense of betrayal between them, but it does kind of patch things up. And we haven't talked about Kazan at all, and I think we should. Yes, go ahead. Well, Kazan, you know, there was a, on Broadway, there was this sort of mantra, Kazan, Kazan, the miracle man, call him in as fast as you can. And he was the great mid-century director, but he was so much more. I mean, Kazan is the man. Kazan, first of all, Kazan's autobiography called A Life is, and I'm, I'm not in the business of praising other theater work biography, but Kazan's memoir is the best book on theater, in my opinion, on 20th century theater ever written. It's enormous. It's great because he's, he's very clear out about himself. He was promiscuous and believed in promiscuity as a, as a stimulus to creativity. And he was the man who yelled strike, strike in the group theater as an actor was Kazan. The man who directed the three most important 
20th, mid-century century plays, Skin of Our Teeth, Streetcar, and uh, Death of a Salesman, and also, let's throw in All My Sons, was Kazan. The man who started the actor studio, which produced all of, the, or a good portion of the great cinema actors of this uh, mid-century, was Kazan. And let's not forget all the films that he made, including On the Waterfront and Streetcar Named Desire, was Kazan. The man who was the first co-artistic director of Lincoln Center, of which Miller's play uh, After the Fall about Marilyn was Kazan. And that wasn't the end of it. Kazan went on to write five best-selling novels. So he was just a, 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 a complete dynamo. And, well, great, you know, his, his reputation has been tinged uh, mm. greatly by the House on American Activity uh, Committee. But even there, generally, the sanctimony, the, the ecstasy of sanctimony, his situation was very, very moot. He had been a communist, and he'd quit the Communist Party because he felt there was communist infiltration into the group theater. And he saw no reason for giving up his film career because he 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 finished with Broadway. He was going to make a life making movies, which he subsequently did. But he 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 appeared before the House on American Activities twice. The first time he, behind closed doors, he, he did not give names, but they forced him to give names. And I, I, can't, I find it, um, it's too easy to dismiss him and to, uh, after the fact, sort of boycott him entirely. I think he was in a very, very tough position, which, uh, you know, we can't walk in his shoes. He had to give up his whole artistic life. I mean, I know... People say, yeah, but he could come back to Broadway and work. He could have, but he didn't. That was past him. He had defined what he wanted to do. He wanted to be more creator than interpretive, if you see what I mean. So I think it's still, there's a certain area, for me anyway, of ambivalence toward what was clearly a very hard decision. And by the way, one that when it was first broached to Miller, Miller understood his predicament as he writes in Time Bins. It, it, it's just complicated. He was much more, he was really psychologically astute and intuitive about actors. And Miller knew nothing about theater craft until Kazan came along. I mean, Kazan really could motivate actors, uh, understand them, uh, open up plays psychologically in a way that really hadn't been done up until his reign of influence. So maybe it is time for him to be rehabilitated. John, we've been talking for over an hour and I, I can't keep you forever, but we can't we can't finish without talking a little bit briefly about The Crucible. I was interested, by the way, that you describe it as a moral melodrama. And I just wanted to ask you as a technical thing, what makes it a melodrama as opposed to a drama? I think the extremity of their situation, for instance, the ecstasy of the girls at the finale of the first act, the glee, which is psychologically very true. The, the violent innocence, see, see, this is an aspect of American life, which he captures. The violent innocence of those girls. In other words, they project their guilt into the body politic, and therefore they are innocent. They, the, the, other, the others hold all the guilt that they that they actually, it's unacceptable for these religious, pure girls to, to hold. So 
it sort of flipped. So they, you know, they they had in that community what they called spectral evidence. In other words, if you saw a ghost, it it was real, and you had to confess to the lie. Just like now, you have to exactly. confess to voter fraud. <laughs> and if you confess <laughs> to voter fraud, if you believe in the lie, you're okay. And if you don't believe in the lie, and so you're automatically put in an insane position where, and this is the point, where the mind is useless. The, the, the lie takes up the entire mental space. There's no way you, 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 you can uh, think. It's deracinating, and that's so. So that's where the play. Miller said that you can't in drama. You it's not enough to explain a phenomenon. You have the play has to embody the phenomenon, and what the Crucible embodies is the the mind main useless and that is what we 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 have a lot of talk in the culture about terror and americans fondly don't think that they're terrorized they think that you know terror stopped we you know uh, we we dealt with terror but the fact is that the terrorized society and what happened we talk about terror as killing people but that is never the entire program of terror. Terror, of course, does kill people, but it, it's also meant to kill thought, to force people into positions which we're seeing in the culture, which divides them, which out of fear they make reckless and wrong decisions, and the society implodes from within. Hey, the crucible is absolutely as apt a metaphor today, this hour, as it was in 1955, because it shows yes. it isn't about, as, as, as was discussed, it's not about the communists. It's about the process, the internal process, which leads to this polarization and division. So that's why it's a great play. And that's why he's a great playwright. You say that it's a play about political paranoia, and I just wanted to ask you whether Miller himself was not also a little bit paranoid about the reaction and the reception to his plays, because when The Crucible opened on Broadway, he saw it as being rejected by the critics, but that's not entirely accurate, according to you, is it? No, well, you know, he's, he's, he may have believed that, come to believe that, we tell ourselves a story about ourselves, and Miller very much dramatized himself and held himself as a public intellectual standing against the forces of reaction. And he wanted it to be seen, and it's how he remembered the rejection. But in fact, initially, he was a household god, as I said. He didn't, it didn't do so well initially. It was restaged toward the end of the 50s when the heat of the communist uh, threat, the Red Scare, was lower, if not, and McCarthy had been exposed and sort of denuded of a lot of his power. And, it, you know, it had another revival, which was much better received. But he, he was not, uh, he found it hard to write in that period. And as you read in the letter, 
the only play he wrote after that was uh, A View from the Bridge, and that was under great emotional duress because he was so unhappy uh, at home. And he'd also, he the, the play Crucible wasn't at first received as, a, it wasn't a failure, but it wasn't the success that he'd hoped and thought, thought of. I mean, I should also say that subsequently the play that sent him out of fashion for 30 years was After the Fall, which is not a great play in, in a in a sort of technical sense, but it has a great second act where he's talking about his relationship with Marilyn. It's powerful and interesting, and he was sort of he he didn't give names to the House on a uh, uh, an American committee, but he I think he was accused by the critics of giving names to, of telling everything about Marilyn, and that was she had, you know she just died, and it was bad timing. But the play actually has much more value as a document than um, it was first uh, thought. In your reading of all the uncatalogued papers of his that you were able to access at the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Austin, Texas, did you come across any speculation from or by Miller about the involvement of the Kennedys in Marilyn's death? No, nothing. Nothing? No. You know, no. Nothing, not not a word. Although, you know, the his letters and his diaries are still to be edited. Uh, it may, uh, I don't know what that will reveal, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. By the time they get published, nobody in this next generation Z will even know who Arthur Miller is. You know. But but why is this taking so long? Why are those things not yet done? Well, because you know, the estate. He's, you know, this is the great golden fleece. The the estate sort of once, it's hard to do. It's hard to edit these things because you want something that's readable and you people often, the estate controls what, who is going to edit it, which I, I don't think they've yet decided. And the, his own diaries, which are kind of interesting, the, his, his, his workbooks, are very hard to read because he writes in very very small and and they're they're sketchy they're just ideas he throws them in a book and then he goes back and looks and he's talking to himself there's some interest in that but it's an academic exercise for the person who does it and a long one so i have no idea how how, how long that will be but not any time in my lifetime i don't think i'll see it in closing you mentioned how much you loved Elia Kazan's memoir. I have to ask you: Do you have a favorite biography? Given that you are a master practitioner of the craft, is there someone else who you think? A, well, um, I love. I, I, I don't. You know, I wish I could say I was a great reader. I'm not. I mean, I'm a slow reader. But the first, the first person who caught my imagination, and I've tried to use him in my own way was Dr. Samuel Johnson, Dr. Johnson, who wrote Lives of the Poets. And he actually split the, what I try to integrate. He had the, the biography and then a discussion of the work. But my, I thought my ambition is to, is to meld the two into one, one narrative and have the facts of the life and the facts of the play have a conversation between the two in one, in one narrative. Of, the, of, the, of traditional biographers... I like Lytton Strachey for style, 
eminent Victorians, and I, I, I love the information and the storytelling ability of Robert Caro on the, the Lyndon Johnson books, which are epic and f- fascinating. And he's, it's hard to get a balance if you're a biographer between loving all the material you're getting and telling a really cracking good story. And so that, you know, you were asking before about synthesis, that's where it comes in. And it's, he seems to me to be a model of, of both scrupulous research and good storytelling. What's your actual physical process and method? Are you doing everything by hand? Are you oh, one no, of those never. index cards? I write on a computer and I, I find that my process, rather like Beckett's, is uh, try, fail, fail, fail better, try, fail again, try again, fail better. I mean, uh, and the, the computer allows me to keep uh, what I have a thought, <laughs> to get it down. Uh, it, it's, to write by hand is too slow. That if I get the impulse and can write down what I think, then I can go back and play with it and try to make it make sense. I and also get my get the grammar uh, working and the rhythms. Uh, you know, I'm uh, it's a endless process, and I'm now 82, and I'm still not cracked it. But I still I uh, I just always was interested in how. Literally, it's very simplistic in a way, how words work and how they pop and how, how to, I mean, I like it when I can make, when they make people laugh or where, they, where there's just an energy between them that, that, that works by juxtaposing sentences or clauses. It's taken me a long time. And the New Yorker editors, especially my beloved personal editor at the New Yorker, Deborah Treisman, has just taught me an enormous amount about about structure and language, and the fact that there are many ways up the mountain. I have to say that there are lots of very felicitous turns of phrase in your book on Arthur Miller. I love the fact that you describe him at the end of his life when he falls out of fashion. You call him the most lionized of outcasts, which which I thought was was a lovely way of describing him. (laughs) Well, thanks. Thanks. It's been an absolute joy talking to you, John. Thank you so much for your generosity and look forward to whatever it is you're going to write next. Thank you, Carol. It's fun. It's fun to talk, really. (laughs) Well, bit of a bombshell there, hearing that Miller's diaries and letters will not be edited anytime soon. What riches await his future biographers? Arthur Miller emerges from John Lyle's biography not as a household god, but as a deeply flawed man torn between desire, shame, ego, and lofty ambition. Lars' forensic analysis of the dynamics of betrayal within the family and the way Miller is able to convert this material into some of his most memorable work, as well as the chapter about Miller's lifelong interest in the story of the Salem witches, which resulted in the Crucible, are especially rewarding. At the end there, John La mentioned how much he admired the biographer Robert Caro. For those interested in learning more about Caro and his monumental lifetime's work, his epic biography of Lyndon Johnson, we're currently waiting on volume five, 
do not miss the new documentary called Turn Every Page, about his relationship with his editor, Robert Gottlieb, which is available now to stream on Amazon Prime. It's a delight about two very erudite men. Life Sentences is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Pipewolf Media. This episode was made with a grant from Create New South Wales, and I would like to acknowledge their generosity. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to the First Nation storytellers that came before us. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown.